0: There were a number of men who'd been concerned for a number of days before this event. There is some conjecture, some information that we've heard about people hearing frogs calling in the mine.
1: On the night of Tuesday, the 12th of December 1882, in Creswick, Victoria, 41 gold miners descend 250 feet into the new
2: Australasian gold mine number two to start their night shift. Hours later, two brothers tie themselves together as the cold, rancid water continues to rise. The Navy is called. A whole town is on edge. The mining community of Victoria will be changed forever.
1: Welcome to Dead and Buried, a series which delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne and beyond. I'm Leigh Hooper. And I'm Carly Godden. This episode, we tell the story of one of Australia's biggest gold mine disasters that occurred in Creswick in 1882.
2: We talked to Dr. Joan Hunt, who specialises in mining history, and Dr. Jan Crogan from Sovereign Hill, an outdoor historical museum and perhaps the biggest tourist attraction in the city of Ballarat in Victoria.
1: We also talked to Darren Bellingham and Gary Ellis, who are descendants of two of the miners involved, so they can help us tell their story.
2: So I think it's safe to say that everyone in Victoria, or probably even Australia, is aware of our massive gold mining past.
1: Yeah, so who hasn't gone panning for gold? It's practically a rite of passage. My year six class went to Hill End in New South Wales, and I remember the joy of finding those minuscule dots of yellow and taking them home in a little plastic
2: tube. Yeah, Lee, I put my bet on the fact that some teacher or adult kind of sprinkled that pool with little dots of gold every morning, just so little kids like you would get all excited and you know get the gold fever. Thanks, Carly. (laughs) Way to ruin your dreams.
1: (laughs) Well, you're probably right. Well, it must have worked out for some because gold fever was running wild in the 1850s. Australia jumped onto the gold mining bandwagon just after California finished. So it makes sense that those miners who maybe didn't have much luck but who had caught the bug would come and try their hand in hot and arid Australia.
2: Yeah, and they were joined by a multitude of miners from places like China, Europe and the United Kingdom and Ireland. Mining was a very common occupation at this time in the UK, and well before. Lee, did you know that copper and tin has been mined in Great Britain since the Bronze Age? Well, no, I did not. Well, now you do. And it's incredible to think how the gold rush in Australia came along and changed our country in so many ways, socially, politically architecturally.
1: So we sat down with Dr Joan Hunt who explained the significance of gold mining in Australia and in particular
3: Victoria. The word got out and for instance here in Victoria a lot of miners who had been mining for gold up near at Bathurst and round there came down to Victoria starting to look here. And then for, people came from other colonies and then gradually the word got out in uh, Europe and particularly in Britain and then the ships started coming here. So, you know, by the e- end of 1852, for sure, it was really on for young and old and there was just so many people coming, so that... When the census was taken here in 1851, the population was less than 100,000, right? 97,000 people were on the census for Victoria in 1851. By one decade later, when the next census was taken, 1861, the population was over half a million, 538,000. So, Just in terms of the population, the growth was enormous, but it's the impact that that had. Because of that, the economy boomed. And because there was all this gold being found, That stimulated it even more. And that's why you have these absolutely beautiful cities like Ballarat and Bendigo and Castlemaine and Maryborough with these streets and streets of gorgeous Victorian architecture all built on gold.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. To think of all those gorgeous towns, uh, they're pretty much lined with the blood, sweat and gold of all those miners, right? By 1882, though, the gold rush had well and truly passed, with all the easily found gold, well, you know, found. The shallow alluvial gold, the gold you could find with your pan in a river or by digging a little bit, was by now pretty much all gone. By this time, efforts focused on the mining of deep lead alluvial gold. It was a whole new ball game.
1: We'll leave it to senior historian from Sovereign Hill, Dr Jan Crogan, to explain what deep lead
3: mines are. Deep leads were buried rivers, rivers that had been on the surface millions and millions of years ago, um, had had a lot of gold washed into them and eroded into them from the the ranges and so on around them the hills and mountains around them uh the gold in the rivers being gold heavy fell to the bottom of those creeks and rivers Uh, if the river did a meander and went around a corner then the gold would just stick in the corner uh then over millions and millions of years there was a build-up of um animal and plant matter um in some places volcanic eruptions but in ballarat east no volcanic eruptions just a build-up of soil and erosion and so on uh And when the first miners came here in the 1850s, they realised that if they could locate these buried rivers, they'd locate literally a gold mine.
2: So these underground rivers of gold sound pretty dreamy, but how to get at them? Gold mining companies, of course. Here's Dr Joan Hunt again.
3: So gradually um, miners would get together in larger groups and they would set up mining companies and they would buy shares in their own mining companies very often, certainly in the early days. And then they were able to go down much, much deeper. Eventually they replaced horsepower with steam engines, and so, you know, the whole thing just uh, built on itself so that you ended up here in Ballarat, for instance, with mining companies having foundries, and then miners themselves who had the ability to be iron founders would set up in business themselves and they would um, be building things like steam engines and then that gradually, as the railways came, they started building locomotives. And once the gold was gone, the big cities still remained because they'd replaced the gold by this big industry, heavy industry, and that's really what made Ballarat. The gold first and the heavy industry that followed.
1: It was one of these gold mining companies, the new Australasian gold mining company to be exact, that the men of our story were working for. That is, until disaster struck.
4: When you sing a song. These boys had feelings when they, they they sang these songs, and those feelings actually overtook the fear, which is a remarkable thing. You would call it faith, but the feelings themselves overrode the position they were in.
1: The gentleman we heard talking just now is Mr Gary Ellis. When you meet Gary, it's immediately obvious that he has a huge personality. And you soon learn that he's lived a very colourful life. Before his retirement, he worked as a showman touring the countryside, but he's still performing as an Australian country music
4: singer. Yeah,
2: and he was even inducted into the Australia country music hands of fame Cornerstone in Tamworth, the home of Australian country music. His handprints in concrete joined those of icons like Slim Dusty and Casey Chambers. Gary was very generous with his time. He invited us into his home for lunch with him and his lovely wife Priyani. And he definitely wouldn't let us leave without a few CDs and some autograph posters, which we'll, of course, put up on our Facebook page for at. Follow...
1: Gary is also the grandnephew of Jabez and Benjamin Bellingham, known as the Bellingham brothers. They were two of the 41 miners who went down the number two Australasian mine on the night of the incident.
0: There were beautiful fossils in this limestone from the Silurian era, and uh, they're quite famous. They're, the Melbourne Museum has a major collection of them, and many museums around the world do, because they're a they're a type, you know, they're a, a particularly good example of these fossils of this particular age, which is about 400 million years. Now, I'd been into fossils since I was quite young. I've been on dinosaur digs. I've been interested in geology, mostly, I think, because my dad was interested in geology. He got me interested. But then when I found out that my my great times four and my great times three grandfathers worked in this mine, which was now a geological site of significance... (laughs) And that you know museums around the world had these fossils it was like wow how about that where's that come from
2: (laughs) darren bellingham is the great great grandson of jabez bellingham the bellingham clan are miners from way back as you may have guessed darren is a keen geologist but funnily enough he's also a gold mine tour guide at the sovereign hill museum
1: we interviewed darren in his secluded country home His love of geology was plain to see with the many displays of rocks and fossils that decorated the house. He's even got a rock that he gathered up from the former site of the Australasian Mine Number 2. The Bellinghams were originally from Worcestershire, England. Their father, Timothy Bellingham, came to Australia alone in the late 1850s. He set himself up as a miner and a preacher. It's perhaps little wonder they left what was then called the black country.
0: There are descriptions of the area. It was just filthy. The trees were black. If you climbed a tree, you went black. So, you know, when I discovered that about Timothy, it was like, oh, I've got a Dickensian (laughs) character in my family.
2: Timothy would go back and forth over the next few years before his wife Hannah and young son Jabez would follow him to Australia in 1861. Younger brother Benjamin was born not long after. The family set up house in Happy Valley, about 50 kilometres from Creswick. Timothy Bellingham died in
1: 1872, leaving an 18-year-old Jabez in charge. Jabez would go on to marry Elizabeth Parks in 1879 and have two little boys, James and Stanley.
0: Jabez was a Bible Christian, which was an early Wesleyan church. He was the choirmaster at that church. It is understood that he led the singing underground. It would make sense. He would know the hymns.
2: After Jabez married, the responsibility of providing for their mother Hannah and the four Bellingham sisters fell to an 18-year-old Benjamin. Now the family's breadwinner, as well as mining, Benjamin also worked part-time as a soldier.
0: So Benjamin was in the local rifle militia, so this is a period before Federation, there's no Australian army, but each colony had groups of militia, and Benjamin and one of the other miners were both in that militia.
1: As fate would have it, Benjamin wasn't even supposed to have been working the mine that night. Did someone or something have an inkling about what was to come?
0: Benjamin Bellingham wasn't even supposed to be working that day. He'd taken a shift from another guy who was sick, apparently. But was he sick or was he worried about the frogs in the mine?
1: OK, so to understand the significance of the frogs, we need to go into a little bit of detail about the history of the mine's operations.
0: The Australasia mine had been around since the late 1860s, early 1870s. There were various permutations of this mine. It was on a junction of some major underground rivers and it was one of the richest patches of deep lead mining that existed. Uh, Australasia, number one, um, they worked it for a number of years. They got a couple of tonnes of gold out of the mine, but there was a lot of water and they abandoned that mine. Then they moved 700 metres to the north and sunk a second shaft. So that was the Australasian number two. And that shaft, they started digging in two different directions. They started moving south back towards the original drive, and they were moving north following the course of the river where the gold was underground. Moving back towards the other end, most people say that they were doing that because there was rich ground there. The Australasia number 1 was on rich ground, and they were moving back towards that area because there was good gold. Now, I have a map that says that that's not the case, that it was pretty average in that area. So they were certainly moving back in that direction, but just to get average gold, not because it was particularly rich or particularly important that they went back towards the old shaft. There were a number of men who'd been concerned for a number of days before this event. There is some conjecture, some information that we've heard about people hearing frogs calling in the mine. Now... That apparently was quite an unusual event. We Don't know if it's true or not, but I've been told this by a number of people.
2: Frogs are generally associated with water, right? That's what they say. In the early hours of Tuesday, the 12th of December, 1882, two miners, Henry Reeve and William Mason, were working on the shaft moving south.
0: The miners knew they were heading back towards the old shaft and they also knew that mine was flooded. And it was being surveyed by the mine manager. But the old mine manager had died in April. And a new mine manager, although, you know, April to December is a fair amount of time, the new mine manager had taken over. And the mine manager's job was to survey. And, of course, it's very important to survey so that you don't hit the old shaft. And he did his job quite well. The flood happened when the two men were digging and some what was called degraded slate between the two mines, 22 feet between the two mines, and the water found a way through it and burst into the north, the southern part of the Australasia Number 2.
1: It's 4.45am. Freezing cold water gushes into the mine. There are 41 men down there.
0: Those two men ran back towards the shaft, OK, because they're south of the shaft, they're running up towards the shaft itself, because they knew there were lots of men working in the other side of the shaft, up to 500 metres away from the shaft. Some of them were 300 metres from the nearest
2: escape. They warned Michael Carmody the Platman, of the flood. Michael's father James is also down below.
0: So he worked at the bottom of the shaft. He didn't move into the drives but he was responsible for getting ore trucks into the winder to get things back to the surface. That was his job. But if there was a problem in the mine, his job was to warn the miners. And he ran down to warn the men who were in the northern part of the mine because they were going to get trapped. Some of them would be trapped, some of them would be able to get out. But he had to warn them all that the water was coming. And he let two particular men, two men who were trapped, Manly and Chegwin, he told them and then he ran back out of the mine as quick as he could. So he got out, but he warned these two men. They ran all the way down to warn everybody else. But by the time they were aware of the danger, the men who were at least 300 metres past the last possible exit, there was too much water. So there were 29 men initially. They pushed up against the water and the rubble and everything that was being pushed by the water towards them, and one man got out.
1: By now it's 6am... 13 of the miners have managed to escape.
0: And then they tried again, they pushed up, and this is all in the total dark because all their candles have been extinguished by the rush of water and air. So this is total dark, You can't see anything, you're in a flood and you're 500 metres from safety. They pushed up again, all of the men, and one more man got out. So there's 27 men trapped and there was a small rise, it was just called a rise or a shoot, it just went up. In the mine so up above the level of the main drive and they stopped there they couldn't get out there was no higher level but this did give them a little bit of air room a little bit of headroom and effectively what they then did was tread water they were hanging onto the um the wooden beams in the mine and basically the water rose to their mouths
2: there is nowhere left to go The group of 27 men, including the Bellingham brothers, are trapped at the number 11 rise.
0: So some of them died almost straight away. The the air was bad, there wasn't enough oxygen, and they fell away and
4: drowned.
1: By 9am, word of the disaster had reached the town and family and friends flocked to the mine site. The mine manager sent an urgent telegram to Melbourne calling for help.
4: The warning bells in the mine commenced and uh, they knew something was up and they rushed to the poppet head I think they called it and it was realised that the message got around that um, the boys were trapped underneath.
1: That's Gary explaining how his great-great-grandmother, the sister of the Bellingham brothers, first discovered there had been an accident. It was mayhem. No one was sure if the boys were trapped or if they were dead or alive the mine manager and engine drivers jumped straight into the rescue of the men. But the pumps
0: were started immediately. So on the surface there are two heroes. The real heroes of this story are the engine drivers. They doubled the speed of the pumps to get the water out. As soon as they became aware there was a flood. And the pumps ran for the whole time. The men effectively are treading water. Some of them have died fairly quickly and we believe that the youngest man on the, on the uh, shift died first. He was John Hodge Jr. John Hodge Sr. was the shift captain and he escaped on the day. So you can imagine how he felt.
2: But the water was rising even higher. The pumps weren't doing enough. Around 5pm a telegram arrived from Melbourne. The Navy was sending divers. The mines department contacted the
0: Navy and the Navy sent what you would call helmeted divers. To try and save the men and the train broke a speed record from melbourne to ballarat they
4: sent for the divers from hmas cerebus and they arrived by a special train and got to the mine and got the pump going but they only came with i think it was a hundred meters of hose and they couldn't reach them but they did send for more equipment and more equipment did come up later on the wednesday and into
0: early thursday morning meanwhile the pumps are pumping they get the water level down to a level where the men could get in. The men got in, they cleared the debris, repaired the air pipes, but they didn't get to the men until eight o'clock on the Thursday morning. So effectively the men were trapped for 50 hours. So the rescuers reach the men and they call to the men in the, in the space where they're all waiting, I suppose, to be rescued. Is everyone all okay? Is everyone all right? Is everyone alive? And the delirious half-dead men who are still alive say, yes, we're all okay. we're all alive, we're all fine. And word is sent to the surface, to the waiting widows and relatives of the miners, everyone's alive.
4: One of the guys got down and and they heard this, we're all well, we're here, we're alive. And the scene that uh, Grandma told me about then was this complete switch from... The people who were in so much sorrow at the top, bad friends made good friends. They sang and they danced. And everything changed. Old enemies became friends. It was all forgotten that the boys were saved. So
0: there is great rejoicing on the surface. The men have been trapped for 50 hours. They've survived. Our husbands, our sons, they're all alive. Hooray, hooray, huge cheer. And then the men started looking around in the space, and there's 22 dead men and five men who are barely alive. And they bring out the five survivors, and then they have to tell the relatives, that's all, everyone else is dead.
1: 22 men had perished. News of the tragedy travelled to the surrounding towns,
2: to Melbourne, interstate and all over the world. Along with news of the deaths came testimonies from the five survivors, Peter Maloney, John Manley, Tom Corbett, Cornelius Quirk and Patrick Bowen. They told of the conditions down
1: there, about losing their friends and about the heroes. One of those heroes was Jabez Bellingham.
4: Jabez, of course, got out and... uh, then realised that his brother Benjamin was still down under and, against all of the advice, physical and otherwise, went down again and somehow went against the floodwaters, which must have been a tremendous physical effort, up to where they were. He then led them in singing hymns and the the hymn that was remembered mostly and manly who got out said that he had never heard any choir in the world, or in Creswick particularly, uh, sing hymns like that. And the hymn was The Sweet By-and-By. That was the one that they mainly sang.
5: There's a land that is fairer than day And by faith we can't see it afar For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there in the sweet by and by we will meet on that beautiful shore.
4: To be in that circumstance is no light water coming up so much so that brother brother he's not as big as Jabers and he, he's go his go, head's going under. Mandy mentions that they could hear plops into the water as they would hang on to the rafters above. They would gradually drop off with the, the physical exertion of hanging onto the rafters. So Jabez, seeing that Benjamin was in trouble, actually tied him with their uh, bojangs, I think they called them. They were uh, like leather straps they had around their tops of the boots and tied him to his waist. And that's the way they found them.
5: In the swing By and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore.
2: Creswick Town was in mourning. The 22 men were brought up from the mine, but there were too many bodies to take to the hospital so some had to be lined up at the blacksmiths. The rescuers sorted through the
5: debris
1: and looked for belongings of the men to give to their families. They found some billy cans that the men had scratched messages onto.
2: Yeah, and for those at home, billy cans are what the miners carried their lunch in and used to boil water and food. One of those billies belonged to Benjamin Bellingham. It said, My dear mother, my dear brother, JB, my dear sisters, we are all happy, BB.
1: So he must have written that before Jabez came back for him and to claim we're all happy in a
2: potential farewell note. Yeah, I know. One of the other Billies, and the only one that survived today, is the Clifton Billy, and we went and saw it at Creswick Museum.
1: We did, um, and we put some photos up on Facebook of that. And though it's illegible now, it once said, Goodbye, dear mother, sisters and brother, Philippa, my dear girl, John Thomas Clifton.
2: The funeral took place the following afternoon. Every local mine shut down, the surrounding town shut down, people came from all over to march.
0: All the mines were shut for miles around. 2,000 miners marched in the funeral procession, which was not a long way. As you know, having visited the site, it's about 2 kilometres or less from the the site of the mine to the cemetery. 15,000 people lined the route of the procession. There were 4,000 people marched
1: altogether. John Clifton, who rode on the billy, was said to have prophesied that if they didn't make it out, their funeral would be the biggest Creswick had ever seen. Well,
2: that prediction had definitely come true. As well as miners, Foot and Mounted Police accompanied the procession. Thousands arrived by train from Ballarat and Clunes. The Volunteer Brass Band played Dead March and "Saul." Also in the procession were members
1: of the Prince of Wales Light Horse, various unions and friendly societies. The Creswick Rifles fired off a salute over the graves of Corporal Edward Wood and
2: Private Benjamin Bellingham. Jabez's Bible Christian Church Choir were also part of the procession.
0: And the tragedy of the description of the funeral, where his choir sing over over his grave.
5: In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore.
1: The new Australasian mine number no. two tragedy left eighteen widows and sixty three orphans a coronial inquest took place. It concluded that the men had drowned as a consequence of a burst of water into the mine. But while this burst of water was the mine manager's responsibility, it was largely unpreventable. Here's Darren.
0: It was effectively an open finding. The inquest into the deaths said that it was a mistake that any mine manager could make because they didn't actually hit the the actual um, shaft, they came to within 22 feet of the shaft and there was degraded rock that dissolved effectively and caused the the flood. So it really wasn't, you know, like a surveying mistake that was so bad. They were closer than they thought they were, but they were within the bounds of a reasonable, you know, mine manager working underground should have been. Because it's not a perfect science, surveying
2: underground. With a tragedy of this magnitude, the public was moved to help the widows and orphans. It wasn't long before over £20,000 had been raised.
0: The Age newspaper has kicked off a fund and they put in a certain amount of money. I can't remember exactly how much. And all of the major councils in the area, so Ballarat, Bendigo, Creswick, Melbourne, city councils, all put in some money towards the fund. And then individuals were able to donate. Now, lots of companies did. Lots of mining companies donated to the fund. Now, we can't prove this. Why would you, as a mining company, donate to a fund to help the widows of a mining disaster? Would that be to stop them from suing the mine and perhaps setting a precedent for, for other mining disasters? Or is he, are you just a really generous mine owner you know you can make your own conclusions about that so uh, pretty soon £20,000 £5 dollars in today's money
1: the government stepped in to take control of the massive donation
0: but I don't know where it was or what accounts it was in or whether it was just promised or what but that amount of money divided by 18 women would have been the equivalent of a tats lotto win each huge amount of money but it's 1882. Women aren't supposed to have large amounts of money. Men are in charge of the money in a house, and there are letters in the newspapers of people complaining, saying some of these widows have already got houses. That they're okay. What? Why should? Why should they? They shouldn't. It's not right that they should get this huge amount of money. So there's there's debate going on in the community about. Should these women get this money? The state government resolves the debate, eventually, two years later, so the women, goodness knows what they're living off in the past two years. But in 1884, there's a new Act, the Mining Accident Relief Fund Act. But it doesn't give the money just to those widows. The Act is set up to provide for all victims of mining disasters. And, of course, then there's further outrage because the people who donated the money... ..but I donated this money for the widows of this disaster, not for everybody. What's going on? So, again, there's a huge debate and and there's animosity and problems because the people who believe that the widows should have got all the money, they're not going to get it. And the government's very clever. Instead of just splitting the money up and giving it to the widows, they invest the money and the interest from the investments, is what the widows get. And what that works out to be is less than half what their husbands were bringing home in a wage. Mm -hmm. So they've effectively turned these women into paupers. They're on the dole, effectively, you know. They've got half the amount of money that they had when their husbands were working. So they'll survive, they'll be okay, but they're going to live in poverty unless they remarry. And the Act specifically states that if a widow remarries, she gets £50 from the Act, 25 weeks' wages in a lump sum, but then she gets no more money. So there was a form of encouragement. So they were going, "Okay, we want you to remarry. Then you're not a burden on us anymore because your husband will be paying for you, you know. He'll be providing the income in the future. But as a little incentive, a little juicy carrot, we'll give you £50 out of the fund if you get married. But then you get nothing else.
1: Sounds a bit shifty, right? It sure does. And Gary read to us from his research notes to tell us exactly what compensation was offered.
4: And the sums to be paid were 15 shillings per widow, five shillings for eldest child under 14 to 17 years, four shillings for the next child, then three shillings, two shillings and one shilling. Any other child received nothing until the first child was no longer dependent on the fund. And here's the little rider that really upset them. And when you think, what an insult. Each widow was presented with a Singer sewing machine so that she could earn her own living. Now, that really made him boil. And I wonder, when you think about it, if she did use this Singer machine and made a living, would would have the pension cancelled out? I, I suspect it may have.
1: Gary raises a good point. While I can accept that being given a Singer sewing machine to make your own living would have been kind of helpful, I feel like that at the time,
2: £1,111 would have been much better. Yeah, and what's the deal with turning a charitable donation into a general pension fund for all victims of mining accidents? That really would have been a slap in the face for the Creswick widows. Though not everyone we spoke to had the same bleak opinion on the fund.
3: I think they had to set up that separate fund like that, the 1884 official fund because there were so many people involved i think it was as generous as anybody could probably expect for given the period of time i think it's a bit like today where we say rather than giving villages in papua new guinea a whole lot of money isn't it better to buy them a water pump for yeah. the village so that's i sort of see the sewing machine in that sort of category that okay you've got a sewing machine You can, my mother did that for years and years and years, supported us by her sewing machine, you know, sewing jeans for our sweatshop, (laughs) really. And she had that in the dining room at our house for years and years and she just used to labour away and got about... I don't know, 10 cents or something per, per thing, but she did it because it was one That's way of right. being able to yeah, keep body and soul together. So
1: We've also viewed a few of the civil court cases of the widows suing the mining company, although none of them were particularly successful. That would have been due to the inquest stating that the mining company was not directly responsible
2: for the accident. As per the 1877 Mine Statute Act, to claim any kind of compensation, the company had to be found negligent, which would have been difficult given that the coronal inquest found that the mining manager wasn't at fault. Yeah, so I guess that's why the widow's compensation ended up becoming a fund. But besides this, aren't there reports of another controversy, Lee? Mm Mm-hmm. In the 1890s, government officials invested
1: all of the funds in one individual, Mr Jacobs, who was constructing a large building in Melbourne, This turned out to not only be a poor business decision, but was against the requirements of the Act, which stated that the money would need to be invested in multiple investments to negate risk, and to not be invested in the building trade. Mr Jacobs, who was in the cigar business, couldn't pay the interest on the loan, and he was eventually released from the mortgage, with a lot of questions being asked by the Union and Australia's Miners
2: Association as to the why and how. Sounds a bit dicey to me. Totally dicey. Okay, but on a more positive note, many of the recommendations from the inquest were made compulsory by law, including the mode of signalling, protected lights, escape drives and the provision of ladders where possible. True, but as Dr Joan Hunt
1: discussed with us, by 1882, many changes had been or were already being implemented in the mining industry.
3: These have been happening all over the place. You know, I've got dozens and dozens of coroner's inquests from the Public Record Office Victoria of disasters that have been caused on a much smaller scale happening through the years. And invariably, if a big piece of stone fell or a piece of timber gave way or a man fell down a shaft or a piece of equipment struck somebody and killed them and there was an inquest, there would always be the jury saying, why did this happen? Who was responsible? How can we prevent it happening again? So really, over the years, there had been tightening of regulations to a strong, you know, to a high degree. Um, And really, to be perfectly honest, the new Australasian mine disaster was just another one, even though it was far, far more severe.
1: Essentially, by 1882, there was already a pretty good system in place to help improve the health
3: and safety requirements of mining. It's really interesting that, in fact, from this 1882 disaster, there was very, very little change because very little change was possible. Um, The miners themselves were the men who had formed their own labour unions working unions, and they were the men who were voted on to the mining boards of the various mining districts. And so all of the changes to legislation that grew out of those bodies were by miners themselves, and nobody was more aware than the working miner of the hazards of their job.
2: Yeah, it makes sense that with miners on the board and in the union that these types of changes were already taking place. I mean, mining was big business and nothing kills big business like death or multiple deaths.
1: Carly and I went on a little family trip to visit the site of the former number two Australasian gold mine. It's not too hard to find, just a little ways out of Creswick Town past the cemetery.
2: There's a huge earth mound from where the tailings must have come out, and the ground is covered with white granite stones. It's pretty much in the middle of nowhere.
1: And it didn't look anything like a living mine. Nothing at all like the photographs or illustrations we've seen while researching this episode. Though there was some leftover equipment and a
2: lovely reflection chair. Yes, the reflection chair. And there were some other tourists or maybe lurkers and some pretty fierce wind there that made it really hard for us to record. But spending time there made the impact of the disaster just a little bit more real. So this is the actual (laughs) shaft. As well as the 63 orphans, we know that at the time of the accident, three of the victims' wives were pregnant. Those children would be growing up with a legacy, not a father. Elizabeth, Jabez's wife, was one of
1: those women, although sadly she would lose her baby. There really was a lot of tragedy surrounding this accident but we can't forget those that died and their legacy even if it is
2: 136 years in the past. And for that reason we are so thankful that we are able to tell the story of this accident and the Bellinghams with the help of Gary and Darren.
4: Strange little thing I do and I've, I really haven't told many people this but uh, this uh, this format is good. Before I go into the recording booth you know which is separate from my producer I always say a little prayer and, and mention Jobus and Benjamin in that prayer to sing with me.
0: From the descriptions, the fact that he ran back to save his brother, that they tied each other together, that they sang hymns while they were dying, effectively. Um, the fact that he ran the choir, played the organ... In a sense, I think I know him a bit, I know him a bit.
1: It's important for us to mention that as well as Jabez and Benjamin, 21 other families lost their husbands, fathers, brothers, uncles and friends. We approached many of these descendants, and while we couldn't interview all of them for this episode, their stories are just as important and heartbreaking as the Bellinghams.
2: You can read more about these men on our website.
5: There's a land that is fairer than day and by faith, we can't see it afar.
1: This episode was produced, researched, and written by me, Lee Hooper, with editing and production support by Carly Godden. Mixing, audio production, and the original score was by Christian O'Brien. And our dead and buried theme music is by Robin Waters. Kat Mier performed the hymn, The Sweet By and By.
5: You
2: can find the full list of music credits
5: on our website.
2: We'd like to dedicate this episode to Dr. Joan Hunt, our friend and mentor who passed away. We miss you, Joan. You can explore the original evidence we use to build our stories at deadandburiedpodcast.com. Connect with us on social media and discover more Dead and Buried episodes wherever you get your podcasts from. Even better, leave a review to help spread the word.
5: Season two of Dead and
2: Buried was assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its arts funding and advisory body, and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria.
5: In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that. Show in the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that